Chapter Four of the Just and the Unjust by Vaughn Kester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four, Adventure in Earnest. Mister Shrimplin had made his way through a number of back streets without adventure of any sort, and as the night and the storm closed swiftly in about him, the shapes of himself, his cart and of wild bill disappeared, and there remained to mark his progress only the hissing, sputtering flame that flared spectrally six feet in air as the little lamplighter drove in and out of shabby, unfrequented streets and alleys. It had grown steadily colder with the approach of night, and the wind had risen. The streets seemed deserted, and Mr. Shrimplin, being as he was of a somewhat fanciful turn of mind, could almost imagine himself and Bill the only living things astir in all the town. He reached Water Street, the western boundary of that part of Mount Hope known as the Flats. He jogged past Maxie Schaefer's Railroad Hotel at the corner of Front Street which flung the wicked radiance of its barroom windows along the shining railroad track where it crossed the creek on the new iron bridge, and keeping on down Water Street with its smoky tenements entered an outlying district where the lamps were far apart and where red and blue and green switch-lights blinked at him out of the storm. It was nearly six o'clock when he at last wheeled into the square. Here only three gasoline burners, survivors of the old regime, held their own against the fast-encroaching gas-lamp. He lighted the one in Division Street and was ready to turn and traverse the north side of the square to the second lamp which stood a block away at the corner of High Street. He was drawing Bill's head about, Bill being smitten with a sudden desire to go directly home, leaving the night's work unfinished, when the muffled figure of a man appeared in the street in front of him. The inch or more of snow that now covered the pavement had deadened the sound of his steps, while the eddying flakes had made possible his near approach unseen. As he came rapidly into the red glare of Mr. Shrimplin's hissing torch, that hero was exceedingly well pleased to recognize a friendly face. "'How are you, Mr. North?' he said, and John North halted suddenly. "'Oh, it's you, Shrimp. A nasty night, isn't it?' "'It's the suffering human limit,' rejoined Mr. Shrimplin with feeling. As he spoke the town bell rang the hour. Unconsciously, perhaps, the two men paused until the last reverberating stroke had spent itself in the snowy distance. Six o'clock,' observed Mr. Shrimplin. "'Good-night, Shrimp,' replied North irrelevantly. He turned away and an instant later was engulfed in the wintry night. Having at last pointed Bill's head in the right direction, Mr. Shrimplin drove that trusty beast up to the lamp-post on the corner of High Street, when suddenly, and for no apparent reason, Bill settled back in the shafts and exhibited unmistakable, though humiliating, symptoms of fright. "'Go on, you!' cried Mr. Shrimplin, slapping bravely with both the lines, but his voice was far from steady, for suppose Bill should abandon the rectitude of a lifetime and begin to kick. "'Go on, you!' repeated Mr. Shrimplin, and slapped the lines again, but less vigorously, for by this time Bill was unquestionably backing away from the curb. "'Be done, be done,' expostulated Mr. Shrimplin. But he gave over slapping the lines, for why irritate Bill in his present uncertain mood? "'Want I should get out and lead you?' 
asked Mr. Shrimplin, putting aside with one hand the blankets in which he was wrapped. "'You're a game old codger, ain't you? I guess you ain't aware you've growed up.' While he was still speaking he slipped to the ground and worked his way hand over hand up the lines to Bill's bit. Bill was now comfortably located on his haunches, but evidently still dissatisfied, for he continued to back vigorously, drawing the protesting little lamplighter after him. When he had put perhaps twenty feet between himself and the lamp-post, Bill achieved his usual upright attitude, and his countenance assumed its habitual contemplative expression, the haunted look faded from his sagacious eyes, and his flaming nostrils resumed their normal benevolent expression. Taking note of these swift changes, it occurred to Mr. Shrimplin that, rather than risk a repetition of his recent experience, he would so far sacrifice his official dignity as to go on foot to the lamp-post. Bill would probably stand where he was, indefinitely, standing being one of his most valued accomplishments. The lamplighter took up his torch which he had put aside in the struggle with Bill, and walked to the curb. And here Mr. Shrimplin noticed that which had not before caught his attention. McBride's store was apparently open, for the bracketed oil lamps that hung at regular intervals the full length of the long narrow room were all alight. Mr. Shrimplin, whose moods were likely to be critical and censorious, realized that there was something personally offensive in the fact that Archibald McBride had chosen to disregard a holiday which his fellow merchants had so very generally observed. And him, I may say, just rotten rich, he thought. Mr. Shrimplin further discovered that though the lamps were lit they were burning low, and he concluded that they had been lighted in the early dusk of the winter afternoon, and that McBride, for reasons of economy, had deferred turning them up until it should be quite dark. Well, I'm a poor man, but I couldn't think of them things like he does, reflected Mr. Shrimplin. And then, even before he had ceased to pride himself on his superior liberality, he made still another discovery, and this that the store door stood wide open to the night. Well, thought Mr. Shrimplin, maybe he's saving oil, but he's wasting fuel. Approaching the door he peered in. The store was empty. Archibald McBride was nowhere visible. Evidently the door had been opened some little time, for he could see where the snow, driven by the strong wind, had formed a miniature snowdrift just beyond the threshold. "'Either he stepped out or the doors blowed open,' muttered Mr. Shrimplin, "'or he's in his back office and some customer went out without latching it.' He paused irresolutely, then he put his hand on the knob of the door to close it, and paused again. With his taste for fictitious horrors, usually indulged in, however, by his own warm fireside, he found the present time and place slightly disquieting and then Bill's singular and erratic behavior had rather weakened his nerve. From under knitted brows he gazed into the room. The storm rattled the shuttered windows above his head, the dingy sign creaked on its rusty fastenings, and with each fresh gust the bracketed lamps rocked gently to and fro, and as they rocked their trembling shadows slid back and forth along the walls. The very air of the place was inhospitable forbidding, and Mr. Shrimplin was strongly inclined to close the door and beat a hasty retreat. Still peering down the narrow room with its sagging shelves and littered counters, 
he crossed the threshold. Now he could see the office, a space partitioned off at the rear of the building and having a glass front that gave into the store itself. Here, as he knew, stood Mr. McBride's big iron safe, and here was the high desk, his heavy ledgers, row after row of them. These histories of commerce covered almost the entire period during which men had bought and sold in Mount Hope. A faint light burned beyond the dirty glass partition, but the tall meagre form of the old merchant was nowhere visible. Mr. Shrimplin advanced yet further into the room, and urged by his sense of duty and his public spirit, he directed his steps toward the office, treading softly as one who fears to come upon the unexpected. Once he paused, and addressing the empty air, broke the heavy silence. "'Oh, Mr. McBride, your door's open!' The room echoed to his words. "'Well,' carped Mr. Shrimplin, "'I don't see as it's any of my business to attend to his business.' But the very sound of his voice must have given him courage, for now he stepped forward briskly. On his right was a showcase in which was displayed a varied assortment of knives, cutlery, and revolvers with shiny silver or nickel mountings. Then the showcase gave place to a long pine counter, and at the far end of this was a pair of scales. Near the scales, on a low iron standard, rested an oil lamp, but this lamp was not lighted, nor were the lamps in the bracket that hung immediately above the scales, for behind the counter at this point was a door, the upper glass that opened on a small yard which in turn was enclosed by a series of low sheds where the old merchant stored heavy castings, bar iron, and the like. Mr. Shrimplin was shrewdly aware that it was one of McBride's small economies not to light the lamps by that door so long as he could see to read the figures on the scales without their artificial aid. And then Mr. Shrimplin saw a thing that sent the blood leaping from his heart while an icy hand seemed to hold him where he stood. On the floor at his very feet was a strange huddled shape. He lowered his gasoline torch, which he still carried, and the shape resolved itself into the figure of a man. An old man who lay face down on the floor, his arms extended as if they had been arrested while he was in the very act of raising them to his head. The thick shock of snow-white hair, worn rather long, was discolored just back of the left ear and from this Mr. Shriplin's horrified gaze was able to trace another discoloration that crossed in a thin red line the dead man's white collar, for the man was dead past all peradventure. Mr. Shrimplin saw and grasped the meaning of it all in an instant, then with a feeble cry he turned and fled down the long room, pursued by a million phantom terrors. His heart seemed to die within him as he scurried down that long room, then mercifully the keen fresh air filled his lungs. He fairly leaped through the open door, and again the storm roared about him with a kind of boisterous fellowship. It smote him in the face and twisted his shaking legs from under him. Then he fell, speechless, terrified, into the arms of a passer-by. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com